Hey everybody, welcome back to the Kaderna Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Kaderna. So today's episode, we have a really unique guest on the show in Jay Jung, who I'm going to give you his background in a moment. But this is the episode that you want to listen to if you're a small business owner, or if you're just anyone out there maybe looking to raise capital to turn your idea into the next big thing. Jay has such a, a pedigree and wide range of experience working with small business owners that uh, this is the episode for you. And even if you don't fall in that category and you just want to know more about economics and what the business world looks like today, stay tuned because we really get into a, a quite a conversation here. But first, who is Jay Jung? Jay is the founder and managing partner at Embark Advisors and has nearly 20 years of experience in strategic finance. Jay used to work at Goldman Sachs as an investment banking vice president and also at McKinsey & Company as an engagement manager. Jay has completed over $50 billion in transactions, including marquee transactions such as the sale of Yahoo, the sale of MuleSoft, and the sale of SanDisk. He is currently working with startups as a fractional CFO or advising them on a consultant basis. Jay has his MBA from the Wharton Business School at the University of Pennsylvania. So without further ado, here's Jay Jung. Is going to require work and time and sweat and toil. If money wasn't an issue, what would I be doing? Don't worry about it. You'll figure it out. Change is the only constant. The Kadena Podcast. Jay, welcome to the show. Uh, it was great to be here. Thank you, Brian. Looking forward to the discussion. Yeah, we're very happy to have you. And it's funny in that that intro when I say pedigree, I mean, these are all like the, the big things in the world of business that you want to see. You got Wharton Business School, McKinsey, Goldman, kind of like all the big players. Uh, where did that all begin? Did you always know you wanted to get into finance? Yeah, I felt uh, I, I, I like numbers when I was younger, so I, I didn't want to go into science or engineering. And so... Uh, I studied econ and business and focused on finance in my younger years and try to kind of break into that industry uh, from the get-go. I, I was initially interning when I decided to start my my startup. So that was a little bit of a detour. It was fun. But I was still doing the finance side as well as the business development, development side of my first startup. But after that, I've been doing corporate finance through and through for the last 20 plus years. Okay. And your time at, at Wharton getting the MBA, was that something you did like right out of undergrad or were you already well into your career when you decided to do that? Yeah, I was well into my career. Um, out of undergrad, I started my my first tech startup. Uh, that's where I raised money from VCs. Then I did a brief stint in-house doing corporate finance and M&A at a large internet company. And then I went on to McKinsey and their corporate finance practice. So I had already worked for almost seven years when I went to Wharton for my for my MBA, it's a little bit later than uh, than a lot of people, uh, but I felt like that was time the time was right, and um, I would get a lot out of it. And, and just a question on that: when you say get a lot out of it, because I have a lot of conversations with folks on you know Ivy League versus other institutions, and do you feel like it was from a a technical and a learning standpoint you got a lot, or in the business sense, is it all about networking and getting to know that alumni? Because um, you hear a lot of pros and cons now of, of you know, what's going on in, in higher education. Yeah, I, I think business school and an MBA program can uh, fulfill a variety of different needs. And it's different for every person. It's not like 
there's one experience to class of an award into class of almost 900 people per year. And everyone's looking for something different for me. Um, I've been working in Asia for a long time and I wanted to kind of broaden my horizons at a, at a more, you know, global scale. So pursuing an MBA in the U S made sense. I had also been working, uh, for seven years, very intense seven years, especially going through the 0708 great financial crisis. So I was, I was due for a break. Um, uh, business school is a lot of fun as well. So you know, life is not just about building knowledge and technical skill sets. It's also about meeting diverse people and, um, you know, attaining a breadth of rich experiences. And I, business school also has that aspect as well. And that, that appealed to me. No, that's, that's great. I think that's what people hope to get out of it. And so just to kind of take us behind the scenes a little bit of, of what you do, because I know a lot of people hear Goldman, they hear McKinsey, that we talk about, you know, doing these monster transactions that you've been a part of. Can you take us kind of like a day in the life when you were in that role? Like what exactly were your duties and responsibilities from sunup to sundown? Uh, back when I was at Goldman? Yeah, like it, whether it was as an investment banker with, with Goldman or I guess how your role maybe differed uh, more on a consulting side with McKinsey. Yeah, I think the... the... The two worlds are actually very different, but at, at Goldman, my, you know, my typical day is, uh, um, you know, just kind of an investment banker works on multiple deals at the same time. So I kind of get into the office and then coordinating with the handful of teams I'm, I'm working on. Um, a lot of times I'm, I'm on the road, um, you know, flying from, from city to city and meeting clients, uh, and then, especially at, at a more senior level, the day is really just endless back-to-back -back calls, whether it's internal teams, talking to clients, talking to potential buyers. Um, so it's it's a it's a pretty uh, hectic day uh, through and through. And I'd say it's a typical day is probably, you know, 10, 12 hours, give or take. Um Certainly at a, at a more senior level, you're doing less of the Excel modeling or the, or the PowerPoint presentation work, but you're guiding the team to make sure they're, they're delivering the, the right, right quality outputs. That, that's kind of my my hectic day in my, my prior life. And that's as an investment banker with Goldman? Yes. Yeah. And how much of that that role, what I think a lot of people need to know, there's, there's a certain kind of lure about or, or sex appeal almost about investment banking. Is there a ton of decision making in that? Is it more time spent analyzing? Uh, like how much is, is kind of the technical and the numbers versus maybe the feel of dealing with particular clients? Um, uh, yeah, I, I think at a junior level, um, it's more about crunching the numbers, running the analysis, um, a lot of the work in Excel, and then putting that um, into a story on, on PowerPoint. Certainly as you get more senior, it's about, people, the relationship, negotiating deals, communicating with management teams and, and board members to kind of articulate ideas and, and make, make critical decisions. So the, the role morphs a lot going from analyst associate to VP, senior VP, managing director. Um, so, sure. You know, yeah. And then would uh, it just give us a, if you could, a quick background on McKinsey, like what was that? jump like is that something that you had dreamed of doing or were you just really ready for a change yeah so um 
as I mentioned, my, my first role out of college was doing my own startup, uh, which we did for a few years, raised money, but ultimately failed. And then I decided I want to go work at a large company to see how large companies do it so I could learn how not to fail next time. But then as I was working at a large company, you kind of see a lot of the inefficiencies and the bureaucracy um, and you wonder if this is really best practice. And that's what led me to pivot to management consulting because, well, from an industry perspective, you would expect that a leading management and consulting firm like McKinsey um, can provide the best advice and that's what they do on, on a global scale. So I joined McKinsey to really learn that management toolkit, again, with a focus on, on finance. Um, and a McKinsey life is very different from investment banking because at least um, up to a middle level, you're still working on one project at a time. So it kind of gives you the luxury of diving deep into an industry, a company uh, with all the stakeholders of the company and, and, and getting to know them intimately well and really um, diving into the strategy and understanding the numbers at a at much deeper level than a, a typical investment bank. Okay. And now just fast forwarding a bit to where you are today, where now you're you're kind of acting as a CFO for a number of these startups and things. I assume that really the driver of all this is to find capital. Is that what most of your time is spent doing? Um, well, yes and no. So um, my team and I, we, we say we function as a fractional CFO, but really what we're doing is we're providing that kind of mature corporate finance advisory through the life cycle of a company. So a typical client relationship over multiple years would look like something along the lines of a client needs to raise capital. We help them do that, whether it's equity or debt. Once they have capital, now they need someone um, with strategic finance capabilities to help the company grow in a profitable, sustainable man uh, manner and having the right metrics, et cetera. So we work with a company to kind of put in that infrastructure, monitor everything on a monthly basis. And then at some point they get large enough that they would either want to raise another round of capital they might want to make an acquisition or someone might come along and say they want to buy the company. And in which case they need a, a M&A sell side advisor. And we work with our clients through the whole life cycle of that um, and make sure they get the level of advisory that a large fortune 100 company would get. Okay. And the question is, what is, what do you see as maybe a common pitfall or common mistake uh, business owners make when they they kind of go through some of these phases that you just just described, and I assume maybe you ran into a little bit of that when you had your startup years ago. Um, do you, do you notice kind of a similarity between maybe some of the the troubles and trials and tribulations you had versus now what you're seeing amongst your clients? Yeah, we like to joke that finance is the last area that anyone invests in. They're going to invest in their product, their technology their marketing, sales, and the last thing on the mind is, is finance. And you see um, companies that have been around for 10, 20 years, they have grown substantially, they generate millions in, in cash flow, EBITDA, whatever, whatever metric you're looking at, but they still have a very rudimentary finance team. Um, they might have a, a bookkeeper, a controller, uh, and then they want to sell the business. And we go in and, and ask for, all types of metrics around sales pipeline, KPIs, um, margin by by different service lines, um, customer metrics, and they say, oh, we don't really track all of that. 
so so kudos to the founder for hustling and getting the company to that level. Um, but I imagine that if they had the right financial support, they could have most likely done better. And it was certainly positioned them better um, with a potential buyer. Okay. So you think that's one of the, the big missing pieces is just someone to track all those different metrics um, to kind of maximize the value of their company, maybe upon a sale. Yeah. And I think having um, the right financial visibility and support allows a company to grow faster, more profitably as well. Okay. And do you find some companies kind of get ahead of themselves where they, you know, I feel like that's that's kind of a common theme too. Is when they start to have a lot of success, they almost success. They almost want to grow too fast. Um, it, do you do you see that much? Like, do you try and kind of pair that back, or are you more of a hit it while the iron's hot? Like, how do you kind of navigate that with a client? Well, I, I think it depends on the environment that we're in. Um, Twelve months ago, a lot of companies were raising a lot of money, and they were hiring as many as as much as they could on R and D and sales. So when we looked under the hood, there were companies that had um, an inordinate amount of engineering resources and they had a very big sales team, but the sales team wasn't ramped up or they were churning a lot. And they, again, did not, they had a lot of people going out there selling, but they didn't really have the um, metrics or the sales force discipline on the, on the flip side to really see if the sales force was performing and to ascertain where they could improve. So it was really more of outward outward facing growth without building the internal infrastructure, which gets um, neglected in some of those environments. I think in this environment right now, um, there is a rotation towards quality and people are focusing more on prioritizing resources, uh, reconsidering headcount planning, optimizing for cash flow and being a lot more resourceful in in how they uh, spend their spend their capital. And when you say some of those terms there of, of trying to get a little more lean, you know, a little more efficient, is that ultimately coming down to um, layoffs and, and just trying to find a way to get more out of each worker? Um, I mean, layoffs are, um, are on people's minds, but the reality is there's a lot of things you can do before uh, before you lay people off. Um, I, I really liked what Mark Zuckerberg said um, in his recent announcement where he's going to raise the bar and he's kind of setting expectations that people are going to have to work harder. That allows for you know natural attrition for those people that kind of had the idea of, oh, I'm going to work at a big big tech company and just kind of coast and enjoy the, the free stuff. Um, so natural attrition, and then if you don't backfill it, then you're kind of naturally bringing down your your overhead. Um, I think that's a good strategy. And then mm-hmm. you can also look at where you're spending money. Um, sometimes clients started spending money on non-headcount expenses that weren't really re- needed, whether it's software um, or other office expenses, and you can start pruning those as well um, without hurting morale firing people is always in my mind the last thing you want to do because it hurts the culture and the morale um and also could hamper future hiring um as a company kind of stabilizes but don't you think uh you know that that should almost always be the goal of the company is you know how can we get the most out of each team each worker and and kind of try and reach that optimal level of efficiency or are you kind of saying that 
there are okay to, times to almost have these cycles of, you know, redlining, working at 100%, and then maybe kind of the company takes a breather of sorts and explores new areas that may not be as profitable. You know, is, is that normal to have those cycle or, or should you always be each day trying to figure out how to kind of, um, you know, be full speed ahead? Um, I think uh, from a management's perspective, I'm sure everyone would always want to be full, full speed ahead, optimized, very efficient. And the reality is um, in tight labor markets, you can't always achieve that. And especially with the disruption that companies had with COVID and a, a new regime of work from home, um, some efficiencies were lost. Uh, but but net net, I don't think companies are always saying, let me milk my team as much as I can and get the most out of them. I think that also leads, that, I think if that's the core value, that leads to uh, an unfavorable workplace. And then you might end up either losing some of your talent or not being able to attract the best talent. So it's a tricky balance. Um, and that will kind of lead me to the point that a lot of companies tend to underinvest in, in HR and, and people where, you know, it's not, a, it's not a simple, simple problem to solve. No, it's, it's definitely not. And I, like you said, that's the risk you run of kind of that, that burnout and maintaining morale while also, you know, looking at the bottom line and always being profitable. And you hear stories about, you know, the, the Google environment that kind of exploded of, you know, these these beautiful campuses where, you know, people could work when they wanted to. They had little nap areas. They had, you know, the the fireman's slide or whatever that they could take throughout the office building, like all these crazy things that seem so kind of cool and, and fun. Uh, and then you hear things recently, like, you know, Elon Musk saying that everybody's got to get back to work, you know, no more no more remote work. Um, what are you seeing kind of like post COVID, like having your finger kind of on the pulse? Are you, you seeing everybody get back to work or is it a whole new world now where virtual is okay? Yeah, I, I think it's a, it's a hybrid. Um, you know, interestingly, we've always been remote even before COVID. So it was nothing new for us. And it was intriguing to see a lot of our clients adapt to the environment. I think many, especially the smaller businesses have figured out a way to keep going forward um, without in-person presence, except for some select roles. And that's allowed them to scale. That's allowed them to tap into more robust labor markets. So it's been a, a boon for them. I think for larger companies, especially around um, manufacturing hardware or, or services, some kind of in-person format is inevitable. So those companies tend to do take more of a hybrid approach where you have to come in, you know, a certain number of days per week. Um, the team will coordinate which days and, and so forth. So definitely seeing a hybrid. And like you said, there are some companies or CEO management teams that are saying it's a, it's going to be back to normal and 100% work from the office. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely things have changed. There's an evolution here. And, and for lack of a better segue, if if I may, you mentioned manufacturing and some of these other sectors that more kind of hands-on in-person versus virtual. In this age of, of globalization of where it seems like companies can move so quickly, as can people, whether it's from state to state, from California to Texas, or from you know the US to Mexico to China and back again, 
what are some of the trends that that you're seeing right now? Like, do you know are 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 states and our countries like the U.S. really fighting to keep certain sectors home, um, or are you seeing clients, companies that are saying, "Forget it, we're just going to go and domicile to the place that um, we can just have the most success as a company financially." Um. Well, I think, uh, especially with the recent supply chain disruption, a lot of people recognize the strength and the importance of having a U.S. base. Um, on the manufacturing side, those that were purely reliant on China, um, you know, really kind of had their uh, painful moments. Whereas a more hybrid model where they had some manufacturing capabilities in the U.S., those companies really shined and they did very well in the last you know, 12 to 18 months. So I don't think it's uh it's an either or scenario, but it did make people kind of rethink um, their, their manufacturing footprint. So it's not overly reliant on a single country, whether it's China or, or someone else. Uh, and I, I see a lot more um, rotation into Mexico. A lot of clients have moved some of their manufacturing footprint or, or warehousing footprint to, to Mexico as well, because it's, uh, it was less, prone to that supply chain disruption. Um, I think in terms of domiciling, I think a lot of companies still recognize that the U.S. is um, the best place to be. Okay. That's interesting. And along those lines, when we talk about some of these supply chain issues, whether it's things of manufacturing or you hear about all the you know, the, of course, the chips in, in Taiwan kind of, you know, being so, so in the limelight, you know, right now. Do you think this is kind of like a speed bump and in, in companies will just kind of move on unaffected and just get through this hiccup of a year or two? Or is this going to kind of like reshape the landscape of where people are getting their supplies from? Yeah, I think it's a signal of the many speed bumps to come. I think... Uh... I think the the general direction we're headed in is you see this tension right now in China, Taiwan. Obviously, there's a tension around war around Ukraine, Russia. Uh, you know, before that, there was you know there's Brexit, there's the COVID COVID virus. I think it's uh, it's a signal to companies, especially larger global global enterprises, to kind of recognize that all kinds of disruptions uh, can happen. And there is no single playbook that will keep a company stable and safe. Uh, crisis management is going to be a regular norm for many of these companies. And is this the sort of thing that you're taking your clients through at, at these early stages? I mean, do you even start, when do you start to maybe have those conversations of going back to being a startup and whatever it is that that you're creating, whatever service or widget, um, you know, when do you start to look at kind of the entire uh, supply chain and, and your customer base? Is that something from the outset or is it better to kind of grow a company, see a little bit of where that takes you and then pivot as need be? Um, you know, how do people, how does a small business owner start thinking about these macroeconomic issues? Yeah, I, I think, unfortunately, when you're a small business, um, it's hard to be proactive, Um about these potential issues and, you know, plan something in advance. I, I think, you know, in the case with a small, medium-sized business, a lot of times you have to be reactive and the key to survival is being 
agile and flexible so that you can react quickly and adapt um, because you don't know where the next threat's going to come from. Gotcha. So you think that's that's something you just got to be ready for as a small business owner is that you're just kind of hopping on the train to a, a, an extent and seeing yeah, where I, some of this just takes you. Yeah, 100 percent. I think you just have to have a problem solving mindset on it and mm -hmm. make sure you you face it head on. And as soon as you see the signals, you you get ready to take some kind of action. Um, but that action is going to be different depending on the situation. And you know, every time it's something new. And is the bulk of the work that you're doing now as, as kind of the CFO role, is it with tech startups in particular? No, we work with, um, we're, we're sector agnostic. So we work with, you know, founder bootstrap businesses, um, founder owned businesses have been around for 15, 20 years. Um, tech startups are maybe a third to half of our work. Tech is the largest industry. So inevitably we have a lot of exposure to that sector, but we also do work in industrials, retail, uh, consumer goods, business services, um, healthcare. So it's a, it's a pretty diverse mix. And when someone's getting started, the um, if you can just kind of walk us through a little bit of that phase, you know, someone has a great idea or maybe they left a, a big company and said, you know, I think I can do it better. Um, the first thing you often hear is, you know, you're going to friends and family to try and raise capital. Is that usually the genesis of most of this or are you finding other avenues, you know, right at the gates where people can raise funds? No, I think if it's a, if it's a capital intensive business, like a tech startup, um, you, know, you probably need some capital from, uh, to, to start the business. And that initial source of capital typically comes from friends and family, um, un unless you're able to secure some kind of seed investment uh, that would require some kind of connection or a lot of networking. But then there are a lot of businesses that, that don't need that kind of upfront capital, um, more traditional businesses that aren't in the tech startup space. And we see plenty of successful cases there as well. Okay. And what are, um, if you can just kind of peel back the curtain a little bit, you know, what are some of the things that the small business owner needs to think about at that stage is the raising money, um, it's because it, the vibe I've gotten, you know, just having some exposure to small businesses that are raising capital is just go grab as much as you can. And, and then once you have kind of this big piggy bank behind you, then it's kind of like, all right, now we can run wild and, and find out, you know, how good we really are. Is that something that, that you see as kind of a measure of success of how much capital you can raise? Or do you kind of pump the brakes a little bit in that that initial phase? No, I, to be honest, um, I think that raise as much as, as you can mantra worked 12 months ago. Um, when people ask what my biggest mistake was in my first startup, which was a tech startup, I would say it was we, was we were too focused on raising capital and building a large team, you know, very uh, external goals to kind of show that we're making progress externally. Um, I think you should, you know, raising capital comes with dilution. So I think you should have raised the right amount of capital, um, which requires some thoughtful work around planning and make sure you continue to deliver on, on milestones. I, I think um, up to 12 months ago, too many companies were focused on raising capital and that became the goal. Less, And they kind of missed uh, the target around building a solid product or, or figuring out the right go-to-market motion 
um, or really analyzing their unit economics. Uh, as a result, those companies are struggling now. It, yeah, and, and that's what I wanted to ask is kind of why are you saying that 12 months ago that may have been a feasible mantra? I mean, is this just a factor of liquidity in the marketplace and, and ease of access to money and lower interest rates? Is, yeah, and now things are just tighter where it's it's just not there or it costs more to do so? Now it is much higher, harder to raise capital. Uh, investors are doing a lot more diligence. They're being a lot more picky. It is a it, it went from a, an extreme seller's market to a buyer's market. So mm -hmm. I, yeah, I would still say you know if you can raise more capital, all things being equal, it's better to raise more capital. But I think it'll come at a heavy heavy cost. In a lot of your companies that at those earlier stages, do you see them? opting for debt or are they more willing to give up some equity or is that completely case by case? It's case by case, but a lot of them are looking at debt because equity is hard to raise right now. Um, or they can't stomach the, the dilution and they'd rather raise debt um, to kind of get to the next milestone and then refinance it with the equity round. Okay. Yeah. Cause I would imagine that would always be a, struggle as a small business owner it's like you're, you're building up this thing that's your baby and then to be having to kind of fraction off portions of it to these new investors or new partners um i i just imagine if i was in those shoes as which you know my having a, a private practice as a financial advisor is different of course in many extents than having a company uh with with physical assets or proprietary technology um that now you're giving out shares of it uh, I would just feel like a business owner would be always a bit apprehensive to essentially take on partners like that. Whereas debt, you can kind of make it go away in the future as long as you're successful. Yeah. Yeah. I think that is a, a big appeal of debt. And we encourage our clients to explore uh, debt options all the time because of, because for those exact reasons. And now switching gears a little bit, Jay, I know in some of your your writing and interviews you've done, you know, you've spoken about wealth inequality um, and, and kind of impacts that that issues like that, again, in the macro and economic that are having on small businesses out there. Can you speak to a little bit of that, of what you're seeing right now, you know, the trends both here in the States and maybe even internationally, if you're seeing anything? Um, yeah, well... I mean, I, I agree that there is a widening wealth gap. Um, I think if there is a way to um, distribute that back to you know, broader society, that would be great. But I also recognize that when government tries to do something like that, for something like that, they usually um, don't end up achieving their goals, but actually they create adverse side effects. So my general view is that uh, the government should not try to force something. Um, but I think for the small business owners, what's, what's more important is I don't think the widening wealth gap really prohibits them from being successful. Um, like the, in my mind, the two are somewhat of an independent event. Um, and mm -hmm. sometimes the media 
tends to mix those two narratives and say, because there's a widening wealth gap, um, there is no upward mobility and other people can't be successful. And with that point, I, I wholeheartedly disagree. Okay. Interesting. So you're more of a, I mean, are, would you say right now that you're kind of the mindset that the American dream is, is alive and well, that people do have that mobility through small business to, to kind of climb the tax brackets? I would, I would say so. And I see, uh, I see plenty of those examples every day from our clients. And it's not like, it's not like they had some big VC funding. They didn't go to an Ivy league school. Many of them are immigrants, uh, but they were all able to achieve success. It's not easy. Um, but they put in their hard work. Um, they put in 10, 20 years of it and they were able to be successful. So I would say, that is the American dream. And whether Bezos, Gates, and Carl Icahn become richer or some of these other families become richer doesn't really have a bearing on whether those people can be successful or not. Okay. That, I, I, I like that insight because you're saying that, you know, as that person climbs the ladder, if Bezos makes out like a bandit, maybe because he's buying that company or something, then in essence, it can be a win-win that it's it's not a one or the other. Yeah, but a lot of times, like the traditional small, medium-sized businesses that are the backbone of America have nothing to do with those tech billionaires or the billionaire families. Uh, the billionaire families can keep getting richer. Um, doesn't mean that small businesses can't be successful. What are you seeing right now? What, you know, just kind of looking at the landscape, is there anything that you're seeing as kind of like a common complaint amongst your clients or on the flip side, anything that has changed in the past few years that has really uh, improved the situation for small business owners? You know, almost like if, if we had, you know, Jay running for Congress tomorrow, I mean, what are some of the things that you would want to do to um, keep things permanent or to totally get away with some roadblocks that folks are facing? Well, I think that's a very, very complex question. And um, <laughs> I, I think uh, someone would have to be very thoughtful about addressing those. There, there are problems, no doubt, but I don't think I really have the uh, recommended action plan for that. The common complaints are, are, are very simple. You, you see every day, a tight labor market, yet increasing or high inflation, energy costs, um, supply chain disruptions. Um, so those are the common complaints. Like what, what's the remedy is, is, is really unclear. Um, you know, what one could, I think a lot of people say, um, you know, just let us be and we'll figure it out as entrepreneurs. And they don't want the government to, uh, to intervene and, and, you know, do things that they, no one was asking for. Okay. Got it. And so what are, I guess, what are some of the things that, that you're bringing to the table right now of, you know, you're sitting down, you're consulting to a particular client um, is really the crux of it, helping them make the most informed decision possible. Would you say that that's kind of the, uh, the, the big advantage that hiring a consultant, someone like yourself brings to the table is, you know, perhaps making an, a, a more informed decision where otherwise they might uh, kind of sidestep into a trap that they didn't they didn't know was there. 
Yeah, what I found is that founders are typically, um, they're really good salespeople. They might have some great technology or a great product. Um, but a lot of times, whether it's a tech startup or a typical small, medium-sized business, the founder is, unless it's a, it's a fund or uh, an, invest, an investment vehicle, the founder is usually not a finance person. But if the goal is to make more money, build a valuable enterprise, that those are all financial metrics. So the founder would benefit from having good financial advice. The problem is in finance, you get paid more for working on larger deals and work for bigger companies. So the most skilled finance people tend to work for bigger businesses, not smaller businesses. I like working with smaller businesses because I was an entrepreneur myself. And that's really where uh, for me, the fun is. And what we want to do is help those entrepreneurs and founders kind of navigate the financial challenges, whether it's growth, profitability, sustainability, um, so that they get the help that a fortune 500 CEO would get. Okay. Got it. So you're kind of bringing like the, you know, that very big broad skill set down to, uh, you know, the small business owner. Exactly. In if you can, again, maybe give some of our listeners that may not be so in tune to the realm of finance and, and raising capital in particular, what are, what are you seeing your clients? Do they fall into like certain categories of, you know what, we're going to go to a bank, we're going to get a loan, or we're going to go find some venture capitalists, see if they want to get into this, or we're going to talk with private equity guys all the way up to, you know, should we try and take this thing public? How do those conversations evolve? Is that it, it? Can you maybe walk us through a little bit of that of what like maybe a case study looks like for you? Yeah, and we have all of those discussions. It really depends on the nature of the business and uh, what the risk return metrics look like. Um, if this is a tech startup that has a very very high likelihood of of failure. But in the event of a success, it can be a 10, 20, 30 X return type of profile. I mean, that's something that we would recommend going to uh, a VC firm for. And then once they raise a VC round, we would also recommend getting some venture debt uh, to augment that capital raise. If it's a business that's you know still solid growth, say low double digits, there's a clear path to profitability in the next year or so. Maybe there's a strong M&A growth angle then I think they should go to growth equity or a private equity firm. Um, and then typically they would partner with a debt fund as they want to do those acquisitions. Um, and then if it's a more traditional business that has, that doesn't need um, immense growth at growth capital, but just needs more uh, balance sheet cushion, working capital, or maybe a, a little bit of, extra capital to invest in marketing or, or inventory, then we would work with a lender that could provide that kind of right size capital needs. So, you know, it's all about really understanding the needs and the profile of the business and then trying to identify the right group or pool of capital that would, that would be comfortable funding that enterprise. And how much is a factor of the business owner, their own financial backing, you know, of, of saying, Hey, you got somebody that's 25 years old. They got a superstar idea that you couldn't be more excited about, but they don't have a, you know, a nickel to their name. 
versus someone that's a career changer at 50 or a serial entrepreneur that's just got this monster balance sheet of their own. Um, how does that affect the landscape of, I imagine it would be very hard for a startup that, you know, is just a couple of young millennials that, you know, maybe don't have, uh, you know, so, so much money and liquidity behind them. Well, it's, it's really case by case. I think if, uh, the couple of millennials have great academic pedigree and worked at some uh, well-known tech companies, or they can kind of showcase what they built in their in their room and their off off hours, like a prototype, an MVP, what have you. I think they could raise a lot of money. Um, the challenge of a career switcher in their forties and fifties, like you said, that might have a lot of capital. Um, you know, sometimes they're met with skepticism because, well, how do I know you're you're gonna go all in on this? Uh, because it seems like you you were independently wealthy at this point, and like I don't want to invest in a hobby project. Or they might ask, well, how much of your own money are you putting in? Um, and so those folks face their own challenges in, in the capital raise journey. Yeah, yeah. I mean, these as you're saying this, it seems like a lot of the Shark Tank questions. Of, you know, of, <laughs> yeah, my favorite just, TV show. Yeah, I bet. Yeah, I mean, and you could see immediately when they they see people who come on there, and either a they haven't put in a lot of their own money, or b they're taking a big salary, and that's where half of the funds are going that they're raising. Um, you know, how do you consult people on that where they have kind of like a different lifestyle that they're used to, where one is just kind of like, hey, I'll live in this one bedroom apartment until I hit it big. And then the other one, you know, wants to spend a lot of that capital so that they can, can keep driving, you know, a nice car. Um, does does that like come up in conversations with a lot of, you know, investors or is that something you just see on the TV show? Um, it doesn't really come up as frequent as you, as you see on the TV shows. I think, um, you know, everyone has a different preference for lifestyle, but they're also different life stages. If someone, you know, worked for a long time as multiple kids like you can't expect them to live in a in a tiny studio um mm -hmm. so i think at least a lot of investors i work with tend to respect the uh the personal boundaries uh, of course if there's any excess that might get noticed but that's a separate separate point okay and maybe my last question on on kind of this whole raising capital is they always say in business it's not what you know it's who you know um, how much really is, is that Rolodex? Like did people come to you and say, Hey, you worked at Goldman, you, you went to Wharton, you know, you, you worked at McKinsey interest, introduce us to some of the, these people with the deep pockets, you know, is that, is that a huge, um, factor in all of this or is in today's day and age, can you circumvent that a little bit with not having such a big natural market? Yeah, I think with technology and, whether it's LinkedIn or some other uh, channels, I think a lot of that, the value of that Rolodex has uh, diminished. Um, I think back in the days you had, I mean, you still have these business brokers and they're, they're sold. They're like real estate brokers for companies. And what they do is you say, you want to sell your business. They'll blast that out to their Rolodex and see if there's a buyer. I think frankly, now it's uh, it's very easy to discover buyers beyond that Rolodex, um, just leveraging the internet. So I think, I think the world is changing 
And I don't think anyone has to be um, afraid that they don't have a Rolodex and that's going to hamper their success. I think that's, um, you know, that's definitely nice to hear for a lot of the folks out there that are trying to make it on their own to hear that they're not only is the American a dream alive, but you don't need to have this, you know, this massive amount of wealth or Rolodex behind you um, to kind of get somewhere, which is, is certainly exciting. And one of the last questions I want to ask, because I love sticking with some of the macroeconomics and seeing how that kind of falls down to the little guy. You know, one of the things you're constantly hearing about in today's day and age is is the aging of our population. What are you seeing with, uh, I don't know if this parlays much to what you see consulting small businesses, but as you have baby boomers retiring in waves, you see healthcare just exploding in the sense of, of long-term care, nursing homes, all of this, and then this gigantic wealth transfer that we're just kind of at the beginning of, of you know this huge generation now coming down to millennials and further. How is that affecting small business? And, and as a, a kind of maybe a part B, I mean, you see so many small businesses don't last until the next generation or the one after that. Um, you know, is this more of the same? Or are you seeing something big, like a sea change going on right now? Well, I think that the population is aging, but I think people are also getting healthier. So I, I know a lot of clients that are in their 50s and 60s, they're selling their business, but they all say, just so you know, I'm not done. So I'm happy to stay on with the buyer and continue to work through this. Um, but if they don't want me, that's fine because I got a few other things going on that I, I'm going to pursue after this. So I think uh, people in their 50s and 60s, I see a lot of people that still have a lot of energy. They have a ton of experience and they're starting new things. So I think that's another uh, big difference that you see from the prior generation. Uh, so from a small business perspective, some, some of the action is coming from from that angle. It, no, definitely is. I think, uh, especially when you're talking about entrepreneurs, that this is their life, you know, this is what they enjoy is, you know, with their health and their energy, they can keep on going. And do you think that's uh, also kind of like a byproduct of people starting later, that, that you don't see people starting a business at 18 or 19, but now they're they're going to school, they're going to grad school, they're paying their dues, they've got internships, and maybe they're not kind of hitting the ground running until they're 30 or so. Um, do you yeah. think that's just kind of like the, again, the trend that we're seeing is things are getting a little more delayed, but then lasting a little bit longer? No, but uh, I, I think there's certainly some of that aspect, but I also think it's gotten a lot easier to start a business. Now, you can set up an LLC in half a day now using some of these internet services. And if there's any question around um, a product, technology, how to do sales, how to do SEO, anything about finance, everything is one Google search away. So I think we're in this unprecedented time where if someone actually wanted to start a business, um, you have all these like medium posts, YouTube videos, basically coaching you on how to do that. And it gives, whether you're in your 20s or in your 50s, it gives you all the resources and knowledge that you need without having to go to an MBA or whatnot to get started. And so I think that's why you see people starting um, new businesses at, at, at all ages. Um, and it, there's, there's just a continual, continued stream there. 
Yeah, it's in it, in some ways it's almost like a blessing and a curse where there's just this extreme uh, amount of knowledge that's now accessible. But with the internet, I mean, it's almost like I tell a lot of folks there's tons of information out there, but there's not as much wisdom. And, and now the task is it's out there. It's just you have to be able to kind of cut through the fat and find out, you know, which is the reliable source, which is the YouTube video that'll show you how to you know, put up a wall in your house without it falling down. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's a good point. I agree. There's a lot of information out there. Um, and I, um, you know, you can see I have a stack of books behind me. I like reading books because I know the author has to put in a lot more time and effort to writing those books. Those are books that I'd be out there forever and ever. It's not like a, a tweet or a LinkedIn post or even a medium blog that might be very uh, ephemeral. Um, so I think there's a lot more wisdom in books, which is why I like reading books, but I still get a lot of information from, from the internet. That's, and that's a great point. I think about, about books and I couldn't agree more with that. I mean, I've written a couple books and have another one underway and uh, it is, <laughs> I think it's just a lot harder than people think it is to actually construct an entire book. Um, so I appreciate you saying that. And maybe to kind of round off here, Jay, uh, one of the things our listeners really enjoy um, with some interesting guests such as yourself is this lightning round, where we'll run through some popular questions that we get from our guests. And uh, just kind of if you can shout out the first thing that comes to mind, so we can get to know you a little bit better as well. And maybe what's led to some of your success. If that's all right, if we do that. Uh, sure. All right, great. So, you know, this, <laughs> and uh, obviously you're an avid reader. Can you say what your favorite book would be? If you can name one. Yeah, my favorite book uh, is uh, Thinking Fast and Slow by Kahneman. It's, uh, it's a book that kind of introduces people to behavioral psychology. Okay. I think I actually have that book. I don't know if I've gotten around to reading it yet. And um, do you have a quote that you live by or favorite quote that you want to share with everyone? Uh, yeah, I like to say that... Um, uh, life starts at the edge of your comfort zone. And right now, the person that said that is uh, escaping me, but I have a little magnet uh, on my refrigerator that says that. I like it. That's awesome. And obviously, you've traveled a ton for a lot of this work that you've done. Do you have a favorite vacation or destination? Uh, favorite vacation, I would say, is uh, is Paris. Paris, Okay. And, uh, you know, you got to live kind of that Wall Street life for quite some time of go, go, go. Uh, how much do you sleep typically on an average night? Back then, I think I slept um, five to six hours on average. Now I sleep eight. Okay. And along those lines, do you have a morning routine when you wake up or do you just go with the flow? Um, yeah, I wake up, I go for a run about three, three to four miles come back i have a double espresso um catch up on my on my uh twitter feed and then shower and uh get ready to go okay and then the last question here you've had some really interesting work experience what would you say your favorite job was and it could be a place you worked or it could be a particular client that you worked on um, what comes to mind yeah other than my my current job which is my company um i would say um, my three years at McKinsey are still probably, mm -hmm. I, I consider the best workplace ever. Um, a lot of the 
values and norms I copied from McKinsey for Embark Advisors. I think it's just uh, they did a really good job of building that people and, and culture infrastructure. And I'm still very close with a lot of my coworkers from back then. Great. That's awesome. And that's pretty much all we have for the, the lightning round. Anything else, Jay, that, that you want to make sure our guests here, or excuse me, our listeners hear from you today um, that you would like to share with everyone? Yeah, I would like to say, kind of going back to that whole American dream theme, I think uh, there's always opportunity for, for everyone. Um, it's just a matter of really putting your mind to it. And then it's about grit and perseverance. Another book I really like is uh, Angela Duckworth's uh, Grit. So I highly recommend that too. Okay, that one I'll have to put on the list. All right, great. Well, Jay, thank you so much for for coming on the show. I mean, there's a lot of insights here that um, folks might even have to re-listen to. Uh, you know, thank you for your time and uh, and sharing some of your experience with us. It was my pleasure. Thank you, Brian. Yep, you got it, man. Everyone, you just had the pleasure of listening to Jay Jung, the founder of Embark Advisors. I'm your host, Brian Kaderna. You just listened to another episode of the Kaderna podcast, and we will see you next time. This podcast is intended for the general public and for informational purposes only. The show does not provide any recommendations or investment advice regarding any specific account type, service, strategy, or product, or to otherwise act in any fiduciary or other capacity. Please contact a financial professional for guidance and information that is specific to your situation. Brian Kaderna does not provide tax or legal advice. Please contact your accountant or legal advisor to discuss your situation. Guest speakers and their firms are not affiliated with or endorsed by Park Avenue Securities, Guardian, or Kaderna Financial Team, and opinions stated are their own. All investments contain risk and may lose value. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. References to specific securities, asset classes, and financial markets are for illustrative purposes only and do not constitute a solicitation, offer, or recommendation to purchase or sell a security. Brian Kaderna is a registered representative and financial advisor of Park Avenue Securities, LLC, PAS, OSJ, 300 Broadacres Drive, Suite 175, Bloomfield, New Jersey, 07003. Phone number 973-244-4420. Securities products and advisory services offered through PAS, member FINRA, SIPC. Financial representative of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian, New York, New York. PAS is a wholly owned subsidiary of Guardian. Kaderna Financial Team is not an affiliate or subsidiary of PAS or Guardian. California Insurance License Number 0K04194.